everybody, welcome back to the Financial Freedom Show. My name is Rob Berger. In this episode, we're going to talk about long-term capital gains, how they're taxed. I've noticed a number of comments to past videos, and folks get some things wrong. For, for example, recently I heard someone say that dividends have preferential tax treatment over long-term capital gains, and that's just not true. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to cover eight things. The first four are basically the mechanics of how capital gains tax works. And we're talking at the federal level today, not state. Of course, state is different from state to state, but how uh, the federal uh, long-term capital gain tax works, how it interacts with ordinary income. You know, can capital gains, for example, push us into higher tax brackets with ordinary income? We're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about how deductions affect all of this, and then something really important called the bump zones. So those are the first four things. And then we're going to look at three pretty common sort of tax planning uh, tactics that are used, particularly for folks uh, near or in retirement, especially if you're before the age of required minimum distribution. So we're going to look at three sort of tax planning uh, strategies. And then the last thing we're going to look at is, well, frankly, a warning about all of this. Now, I want to stress I'm not a tax professional. I mean, I've looked at this extensively. I'm going to leave links to all of the different resources that I show you below the video so you can read them for yourself. But it's really important to consult a tax pro before you make any decisions. Trust me, this stuff is really, really complicated. I'm going to do my best to simplify it, but it's, it's still pretty complicated. All right, so let's get started. So first things first are the long-term capital gains tax rates. So what you're looking at, this is just uh, a chart from a table from NerdWallet. And you can see here we're looking at single, single filers. And actually, uh, it may surprise some of you, the lowest tax rate for long-term capital gains is 0%. And I, I guess I should make, make clear, generally speaking, long-term capital gains are those gains from the sale of, of an investment, an asset, typically for us, you know, what we're talking about on this channel, stocks, uh, um, you know, ETFs, mutual funds, that sort of thing, that you've held for, for more than a year. If you've held something for less than a year and you sell it at a gain, it's short-term capital gains, which are typically taxed at your ordinary income tax rates. So we're talking about long-term uh, capital gains. And for most dividends that are you know, qualified dividends, they're taxed at the same rate. They're treated as long-term capital gains uh, for tax purposes. So while they do get preferential treatment uh, when considered when compared to ordinary income, dividends don't get quote unquote better treatment than long-term capital gains. They, they get taxed as long-term capital gains. So bear that in mind. So you can see again, uh, if you're single, uh, you get a 0% rate up to $40,400 in capital uh, and long-term capital gains. And then it goes to 15% and then up to 20%. If you're married filing joint, jointly, uh, you actually can get up to $80,800 in, in taxable long-term capital gains with no tax. And then, of course, it goes up from there. Now, there are at least two things about these tables that can be misleading. And uh, the first is that it shows you there are three tax rates when, in fact, there are four. And this is not a mistake by NerdWallet. They've actually got the long-term capital gains tax uh, correct, as you would expect. So why are there actually four? There are four because of the net investment tax. That's the tax that was added as part of the Affordable Care Act. 
it's 3.8%. If you're single, it kicks in with income at 200,000. If you're married filing jointly, it kicks in at income of $250,000. And those numbers are not indexed for inflation, which means they sort of, they nab more and more people every single year. But what that means is we actually have four long-term capital gains tax rates. We have 0%. We have 15% so long as the amount of the, the long-term capital gains doesn't trigger that 3.8% net, net investment tax. If it does, and you can see this 15% bracket goes all the way up for married filing uh, uh, jointly, up to over half a million. So some folks in that range, they will trigger the 3.8% additional tax. So that would effectively make their long-term capital gains tax rate 18 uh, 18%. 0.8% if I've got my math right. And for this 20%, the truth is there really isn't a 20% long-term capital gains tax rate, not as a practical matter, because if you if you are in that range, obviously it's over half a million for married folks, over 445,000 for singles, you're obviously going to get hit with that 3.8% rate as well. So your actual effective long-term capital gains tax rate would be 23 0.8%. That's the first thing that you got to keep in mind. Uh, the second thing is, is how ordinary income tax comes into play with this. And I'm going to actually show you on the, on the digital whiteboard in a minute. But here's the thing. I get a lot of folks asking, can, can long-term capital gains push me into a higher tax bracket for my ordinary income? The good news is, no, it can't. I'll show you why. The not so good news is the reverse can happen. Ordinary income, you know, taxable ordinary income can push your capital gains tax rate, your long-term capital gains tax rate into a higher bracket. So let me show you how that works very quickly. So you can imagine uh, income, and this is our income up here, you know, we'll just say whatever, 25K, 50K, 75K, 100K, go on up. So if let's first imagine that all we have is capital gain, long-term capital gains. We have no ordinary income at all. And we'll, it has, we'll say we have 75,000 and we're married filing jointly. And we'll assume for the moment, we're gonna ignore deductions for just a moment. Um, well, this is below the current 80,800. We'll put the 80,800 here. That's the 0% bracket uh, for married filing jointly. So if this was it, if this was the whole picture, this is long-term capital gains, you know, we, we'd pay $0, pretty nice, pretty nice outcome, right? Well, what happens if, in addition to this, we have, we'll, we'll just say, $50,000 of ordinary income? How does that fit into the picture? Well, the way it works, you can think of this as, as stacking. Uh, and we stack ordinary income first. So it, it would be here, 50000 of ordinary income. And then we take our long-term capital gains, and it goes on top. So roughly, let's see, 50 and 75 would be 125, so we'll put it here. Okay, this is long-term capital gains. So that's how it gets stacked. And your ordinary income uh, is uh, taxed first at, at your bracket, you know, at $50,000. And then uh, beyond that, then they look at your long-term capital gains. And you, you'll notice that because of this ordinary income, it shifted our long-term capital gains up, including this part right here, which is above this for married filing jointly, this line at 80,800. Uh, so it's it shifted us from the 0% long-term capital gains tax rate, at least for some of it, 
into the 15% uh, long-term capital gains rate. In other words, while with no ordinary income, we, we paid nothing for long-term capital gains, but if we add ordinary income, it can bump us up into some taxable long-term capital gains. Now, that gets us to the bump zones, but before we get there, uh, we need to briefly talk about deductions. And this, so far, I've assumed no deductions. Obviously, at a minimum, you, you might have allowances uh, and um, the standard deduction at a minimum. Of course, you also may itemize. How do those get factored in? Do they, do they come off the top? Do they come off the bottom, somewhere in the middle? Well, the answer is they come off the bottom, which is generally favorable because we want to reduce our ordinary income as much as possible since it's generally taxed at a higher rate. So if we assume a standard deduction, which is, we'll put it right here, we can imagine this uh, reducing our um, ordinary income and it doesn't look very good, but you get the idea. So basically at 50,000 with today's standard deduction, which I don't, it, it basically we'll call it cutting it in half. So after we factor in the deduction, we'll just say our ordinary income is here. This is ordinary income, and that's gonna lower everything else as well. So our, our, our long-term capital gains might look like this. You, you get the concept anyway, even if my drawing is not the best. Still though, even under this scenario, we're gonna be paying, oops, we're gonna be paying, let me try that again. We're gonna be paying 15% on a portion of our long-term capital gains. Why? Because the ordinary income, even in this case with the benefit of our deductions, bumped us into that 15% tax bracket. And that gets us to uh, the what, what I've, uh, I call the bump zones. It's not a term uh, that I created myself actually, uh, borrowing it from uh, Michael Kitsis, and I'm gonna show you some of his articles in a minute, but it's this idea that your ordinary income can bump your long-term capital gains into a higher tax bracket. If we go back to the, the capital gains tax bracket, you can see that uh, particularly if you've got some long-term capital gains in this 0% bracket, even adding you know, $1 of ordinary income could bump your long-term capital gains, at least that $1 worth, into that 15% tax bracket for long-term capital gains right here. Now, it's possible uh, that your ordinary income won't affect it. You could be somewhere in this bracket here uh, for all of your long-term capital gains anyway, or for a portion of them. And so adding a dollar of ordinary income might not change uh, the tax liability uh, because you're already in a rather large uh, uh, bracket to begin with, unless of course it puts you over the 200,000 or for marriage 250,000 uh, that triggers the 3.8% uh, uh, Medicare expansion uh, tax. So you've got to be cognizant of uh, the bump zones. This idea that uh, adding ordinary income uh, could bump your long-term capital gains, at least a portion of them, into a higher uh, uh, long-term capital gains tax rate. Now, let me show you this visually. And again, I'll leave, I'll leave links to all of this uh, in, uh, below the video. This is from Michael Kitsis. Uh, now, this article, I think, was written in 2019. Let me just double check. Uh, yes, 2019. So the brackets, I think, are the same. The actual dollar amounts would be a little different because he was using 2019 brackets, I assume. But this graph right here, I think, visually shows it pretty well. Um, you can see he stacks his ordinary income first, 
He takes, in this case, the standard deduction and, and reduces it, and that leaves um, uh, ordinary income and taxed as ordinary income. And then he stacks uh, the capital gains uh, on top, just like well, we looked at a minute ago, uh, and um, that gives you the total tax. But you can see, because of this ordinary income, it's pushed capital gains taxes, uh, some of the, what was 0% into the 15%. And here's the point. Uh, is that your marginal tax rate for just the ordinary income might be in these examples probably 12%, but because you're bumping up long-term capital gains from at least some of them from zero to 15, your actual marginal tax rate on that last dollar earned is 27%. You've got to add the 12% uh, marginal tax rate for the ordinary income uh, and the 15% that you got bumped into because of the ordinary income on your long-term capital gains. Hope, hope that makes sense. And that brings us to the three tax strategies I want to talk about. And uh, this bump zone is really, really important for the first one, and that's Roth conversions. That's where you take uh, some money, say, that's in a traditional IRA, for example, and roll it into a Roth IRA. Yes, uh, you get taxed on however much you, you roll over as ordinary income, uh, but a lot of times that can be a great strategy, particularly if you you're early in retirement, you don't have a lot of, or perhaps any, uh, income from, from earnings if you've completely retired, uh, you haven't hit the age yet that requires, uh, the, the RMDs required minimum distributions, and so you're in a low uh, ordinary income tax bracket, it can make a lot of sense to do some Roth conversions. However, if you have taxable accounts and they're generating either a dividend taxes long-term capital gains, or maybe you sell some to live on that generate long-term capital gains, you need to consider the bump zones, not just the marginal tax rate on your ordinary uh, income, because converting those the, the, uh, those traditional IRAs to Roths is ordinary income. Uh, tax is ordinary income, but it could bump your long-term capital gains into a higher bracket. You need to consider that uh, when you're uh, evaluating whether and how much to do Roth conversions. That's the first thing to strategy and kind of a, a thing to, to keep in mind. Uh, the second thing is, is you can actually live on taxable investments early in retirement, effectively tax-free, at least at the federal level. Again, state income tax and local income tax is going to vary from location to location. But if you have virtually no ordinary income, uh, you've got, as a, at least as a married uh, filing uh, jointly, 80800 in 2021 of long-term capital gains that would be tax-free at the federal level. And that's after factoring in either the standard deduction uh, uh, or if you itemize your deductions, itemized deductions. Keep in mind that when you sell an investment from a taxable account, the amount that's taxable is the gain. So for example, uh, let's imagine you've got a 50% gain. You've bought something at 100 grand and, and it's now worth 200 grand. If you sell all of it, you're not going to get taxed on the 200,000. You're going to get taxed on the gain. This hypothetical would be 100 grand. Well, that could all be tax-free at the federal level after you subtract, say, a standard deduction for those married filing jointly. And that could actually put you below the 80,800. So for folks that have retired or you're, you're near retirement, you're trying to plan all this out, you want to think all this through, you could actually live on uh, taxable investments almost tax-free, maybe completely tax-free at the federal level. Again, depending on exactly how much you take out each year, 
uh, and um, how much uh, of your uh, distributions would be considered gain, what your tax basis is. Now, uh, the last tax strategy I want to mention, you've probably heard of harvesting uh, capital losses, right? Harvesting uh, losses in an investment. Well, you can also harvest gains in an investment. So the idea is uh, because uh, you might not pay any tax on uh, long-term capital gains, again, a lot of variables that go into this, if we've, as we've already talked about, but what some folks might do is say, look, I may only need to take out 100,000 this year, as just as a hypothetical, to live on. And let's say uh, 50,000 of that uh, will be uh, taxable long-term capital gains. And so I won't pay any tax on that at the federal level, but I might actually take out more, still pay 0% in, in, in federal income tax if I stay below the thresholds. And then I can immediately repurchase the investment but now I've got that stepped up basis. My basis has increased up to the amount of the purchase. And you may be thinking, well, wait a minute, isn't there this wash sale rule? I don't have to wait 30 days? Well, that's if you sell it a loss. If you sell it a gain, it's gonna be tax, it's gonna be treated as long-term capital gains. You're gonna report it on your, your, your tax return in the scenarios we've described. Uh, again, keeping in mind all of the other factors, you might not pay any federal income tax, but that doesn't matter for purposes of wash sale. There is no wash sale when you sell an asset at a gain. That only applies if you sell an investment at a loss. So harvesting capital gains can be a great strategy. What it ultimately does is reduce your capital gains tax at some point in the future. And just briefly, and again, I'll leave links to all of this, um, but Michael Kitsis has a great article on this very concept. I'll leave a link to it below, Navigating Income Harvesting Strategies. In this article, he actually compares harvesting capital gains with partial Roth conversions. It's a great article, highly recommend it. And I'm also gonna link to one from Schwab uh, on how to save money with tax gain harvesting. I point this out because tax gain harvesting may be completely new to some of you. And you may be thinking, boy, Rob's kind of lost it. What's he talking about? No, it's, it's a thing. Now, having said that, let me get to the, the, the eighth and final point of today's video. This stuff is complicated. Uh, think about just one complication, and that is when you um, have long-term capital gains, that still increases your adjusted gross income, your AGI, which has implications for all kinds of things. It can affect taxation of Social Security. It can affect healthcare-related tax issues. It can affect any number of potential tax credits. This is really complicated stuff, and getting it right ain't easy. So I would highly recommend that you consult with a tax professional before you make any decisions. I can tell you that I do. And the great thing is, is they use software to figure this out. I can guarantee you they're not pulling out a notepad and a pencil and trying to figure this out. They're using software. And really probably about the only way to have some comfort, at least for me, that we're getting this right. So before you make any decisions, consult a tax professional, really, really important. But I wanted today to show you first the interplay between long-term capital gains, ordinary income deductions, and the bump zone, and then how some of these issues can implicate some uh, common tax strategies, particularly for those in retirement and have yet to reach the required minimum distribution age. So hope that helps. I know this is complicated stuff. I'll leave links to all of the articles below the video. If you have any questions, uh, leave them in the comments below. I'll do my best to help you out on this one. Uh, but there are a lot of potential 
positive tax planning things you can do, and it's important for you to understand, at least at a high level, how all this stuff works. Hey, hope you have a great day, and until next time, remember, the best thing money can buy is financial freedom.